Alrighty, cool. Sorry for the little hiatus. Uh, work's been, there's been a lot of it. Uh, but now we're going to go into something, kind of a new field, that is uh, computation theory. I Actually, crap, I don't know what it'd be called. Software theory, maybe. Uh, but this is David Columbia's book, The Cultural Logic of Computation, which is a, an interesting read. I would obviously recommend it to anyone because I'm doing it here. Um, and it's it's pretty accessible. It doesn't get very deep into the kind of um, nitty-gritty algorithmic type stuff indicative of people like Wendy Chun um, or anyone anyone like that or or something in the domain of like media history or software history with like Lisa Gettleman. Uh, so this is really approachable. And what's interesting I found is because he's considering computation, considering software, the internet, things like that. Uh, in relation to the kind of continental philosophical tradition, so he takes up thinkers like Derrida um, in interesting ways, and Foucault as well, that uh, I think that for some, when they think of software, when they think of the kind of analytic framework behind computers and what they mean, would be more inclined to go towards the analytic side of philosophy. So they look at thinkers like, you know, from Aristotle up to Locke to to Wittgenstein, to Bertrand Russell, you know, whatever, uh, which which he does a bit here, but it's really focused on the kind of continental stuff, which is, as someone would probably be able to tell, is certainly up my alley. Uh, so for that reason, it's it's a fun read. It's not very analytical and it's not very dry. It's it's pretty accessible. But to kind of begin it, I want to start by reading off uh, actually part of the conclusion, which is odd. I don't normally do this. But he gives a really good summary of what he had tried to do throughout the book. Uh, because I don't find his introduction is as good as his conclusion. He says, The main goal of this book has been to describe a set of ideological phenomena, the functions of the discourse of computationalism in contemporary social formations, the imbrication of that discourse in a politics that seems strikingly at odds with a discourse of liberation that has more and more come to characterize talk of computers, and the disconnect between the capabilities of physical computers and the ideology of computationalism that underwrites much of our own contemporary investment in being digital. And then he continues, because human beings as such is terrific, terrifically mutable, especially on an anti-essentialist post-structuralist account like the one endorsed here, there is little doubt that the more we imagine ourselves to be like computers, the more computer-like we will be. Conversely, the more we imagine computers can take over socio-political functions, the more we will give up our own influence over those phenomena, and the more they will pass into the domain of exactly the powerful agents, states, transnational corporations, and capital itself that already dominates so much of social life. So that, for me, occurs on, someone says I should give page numbers, page 221, right at the first page of the epilogue. So this sets the kind of groundwork for what's going to be going on here, and sorry for the long quote. One of the other things I want to mention, and that he's very clear about, is he wants to shift the focus of the kind of determinist thinkers of technology, that is, those people who think that with the introduction of technology we see something fundamentally new occurring in relation to the human condition, 
whether it be in the form of a kind of oppression or a kind of liberation. So you have two broad camps, you know, those people that say that technology will be the end of us because it, you know, turns people into computers or, or turns people into kind of binary formations that can be um, easily mapped and controlled. And then you have the other people that think that the computer, and I just use the computer as one example, but you can extend this to all kinds of media, all kinds of technology. Uh, that is the computer or whatever else will be a zone for liberation will open up a kind of democratic potential so he wants to get away from both of those kinds of approaches and say in fact this is part of a greater kind of historical phenomenon that is computationalism so where we might think that computationalism has a direct it's a direct correlate of computers hence the computation in fact, he says that this goes way back. This, this is part of our kind of cultural zeitgeist. So for that reason, he says that we are misguided if we place so much kind of authority in technology and in computers themselves. So there are two levels to the computer for him as just, again, one example. There's what goes on under the surface. So we're thinking of code, we're thinking of algorithms, anything like that. And then there's what's on the surface, so the user interaction with it. Now, these are both two very different things. And there are two very different things that we'll kind of, I'll try to kind of sift out over the course of this kind of talk. So to begin the kind of the book, I guess, uh, on page one, he gives us the idea that computers resonate very well. That is, they seem to sing in harmony with what he calls the rationalist theory of mind. So this is indicative of such kind of analytic thinkers like Leibniz or whoever else that would be, you know, fall, or Descartes for that matter, that would fall into the kind of um, uh, rationalist philosophical tradition, whatever that might look like, whether it be the heavy emphasis on empiricism or kind of a priori thinking, any a anything like that that sees the world as being fundamentally material and therefore understandable, quantifiable. So he, he says that this is very seductive because it makes the world, in a sense, pretty easy to understand. So if you're able to reduce the world to numbers and numbers are very easily easy to digest, then therefore you're going to be able to control people to some extent. So we can see this certainly happening for anyone in the university, you know, universities give money to departments that produce um, numbers, right? So the humanities, anything like that, who cares? Because it doesn't produce numbers. How do you quantify what they're doing? Where a lot of the stuff, a lot of the departments that produce numbers, like real numbers, are full of bullshit. Like you have ethnographic things that have a pretty strong history of being racist, uh, anthropological type things as well, many other kind of domains in the social science and quote-unquote hard science uh, that have not actually done kind of real, you know, studies, but have quantified things based off of some already problematic and already incorrect uh, presuppositions or propositions. So the development of the computer resonates with this kind of rationalist approach or this kind of empirical approach that can reduce everything to numbers. So for that reason, any sort of change, he says, that can be noted in humans with the advent of computers, or again with any other tech, is only a change in degree, not a change in kind. Where there's 
a kind of intensification of what has already been taken place or what is already taking place, not a kind of radical overhaul of what it means to be human. In fact, it's just an extension of it. And if anything, it's a kind of solidification, which he, he gets into a little later. Uh, but to kind of elaborate briefly, the computer in its intensification of what has slowly been kind of boiling, kind of cooking in the cold. Oh, someone dropped something downstairs. All right, yeah, so where was I? Uh, the computer um, uh, the computer just harnesses, galvanizes, and kind of solidifies what has been occurring in the, in the kind of cultural logic of the time. So it's a kind of physical manifestation of what was uh, a cultural phenomenon, that is the kind of rationalist theory of mind. So what is different, not only in this kind of intensification, which is kind of own domain of thought, but Columbia also approaches this in another way, suggesting that the intensification or the kind of physical embodiment of this rationalist paradigm allows for other modes of kind of oppression to seep in, capitalize on that type of empiricism or that kind of uh, rational embodiment. So that's when you have like oppressive corporations like Amazon, you know, how is it that Amazon is possible to deliver things in two days or less? It's because they have a number of algorithms that they've relied on that have essentially predicted where people are going to want to order things, already deliver it to those kinds of hubs, and then make it, you know, facilitate, kind of uh, expedite the process of getting people the products that they buy. So it's just one example. So this reduces people, of course, to a kind of codification. But again, it's important to note that this is not new. This is really, as Columbia makes very clear, just an intensification of it. So what some people might think, and this is one of the kind of big arguments that Columbia lays out, is that because humans are so, um, are kind of so accommodating to this computationalism and are so ready to accept the logic of computers, then to some extent, that might mean that the human brain is like a computer to some extent. So he says that this is indicative of these kind of analytic philosophers, but also in the linguistic tradition. So he'll come to take on Chomsky for that, for that reason. So of this, and I will turn back to that last uh, passage I read, or the passage from the conclusion that I read, uh, where he says that because human beings as such, is terrifically mutable, especially on an anti-essentialist, post-structuralist count like the one endorsed here. There's little doubt that the more we imagine ourselves to be like computers, the more computer-like we will become. And then conversely, the same thing. So it's not so much that the human brain is ontologically, that is kind of naturally, um, like a computer, but in fact, because the human is a kind of tabula rasa, tab I think I said that right, kind of blank slate, then the human brain can kind of become a computer. So it's not to say that that is what it is by default, but rather, and these kind of linguistic philosophers, or these kind of linguistic thinkers that will come into, are unable to uh, recognize, at least this is what Columbia says, unable to recognize that this it has nothing to do with a kind of natural state of the human. And this is what they fail to imagine, but it rather has to do 
uh, it rather has to do with the human being kind of becoming something else. So for instance, I can frame this another way. Uh, if I was a researcher and I wanted to study, um, you know, some kind of rural community, and I wanted to see uh, if people there liked to vote, but they didn't have voting stations, I would go and then they would, you know, probably tell me they don't like to vote or am or are ambivalent about it. But then let's say I were to, there was a suddenly a kind of cultural shift, and they had you know, voting stations. It's kind of a weak example, but whatever. Uh, then I would get very different results. So there isn't really anything wrong with my method there, but it would be wrong to kind of generalize either of my findings, where in the former, where they didn't have voting stations, I wouldn't be able to generalize and say that these people are just predisposed to not liking voting. And in the latter, I wouldn't say that they're predisposed to liking voting either. That's what some of these people, at least that Columbia will take aim at, fail to do. They fail to see that there are kind of, of course, cultural influences that would turn the brain into something like a like a, um, a computer. Or if we have measuring kind of devices to measure the human brain or to measure kind of linguistic capacity, then there is, and this is kind of branching off a little bit, but there is other kinds of theories that postulate that the very uh, object of study will match, in a sense, the tools used to uh, study it. So you could see that the object of study actually becomes the measuring tools used to measure it, used to quantify it, or the medium is the message. So this kind of medium in the realm of computers is what he says the cultural logic of computation which precedes computers. However, we only really, as you know, theoreticians, as philosophers or whatever, only really see things in terms of their physical embodiment. This is also a relic of the kind of hyper-rationalist philosophical approaches that I've kind of alluded to um, that see the world as material. Now, if there is an extension of that thought into the present day, then it would follow that the only things that we could see as being uh, communicating that kind of computationalism would be physical objects. So for that reason, we then turn to the thing like the computer. We then turn to other technologies in order to you know, provide a kind of template for that analysis, which Columbia says is wrong. You know, there is something that's going on underneath that has a historical um, character to it. So now we'll move into those linguists that he takes aim at. So one such thinker is Chomsky, and I don't want to get into all the other ones that kind of make an appearance, uh, because, you know, I could kind of present them and whatever, uh, whereas every, I think for the most part people know who Chomsky is. So Columbia says that Chomsky, there are two sides to Chomsky, and I think that everyone knows this, you know, there's the political side, you know, the ma manufacturing consent side, the anti-war uh, side, anti-billionaire side, and then you have the, lingui the linguist. So Columbia says that with those two sides, you have a very kind of liberal, almost radical uh, persona or personality. And then the other side, you have a rather conservative one. And Columbia is trying to think, you know, how is that really possible? Why, why is it that we have uh, these, these two sides of this, of this guy? Well, he says that the reason we have a kind of 
conservative Chomsky is because he is deeply embedded within what Columbia calls the Western intellectual apparatus. So that is a kind of extension of that rationalistic, empirical uh, dogma that came out of, you know, the kind of analytic philosophical tradition or the early sciences or whatever. So Chomsky then advocates for what Columbia recognizes as being a Cartesian rationalism. Cartesian coming from uh, Descartes, so this kind of uh, Cartesian human you know, thing. And Columbia recognizes or, or sees uh, in Chomsky a desire to see the computer, or see the brain, sorry, as though it was a computer, or though it is a computer. So for that reason, Columbia says that Chomsky's popularity is not at all random. In fact, it, com- it, is, it communicates the very logic of our world, that is, the cultural logic of computation that makes it so easy for people to grasp onto. So then Columbia, uh, and I'm just kind of going to allude to this quickly because it'll come in t- uh, to fruition a little more, uh, there are gendered uh, components to this as well, as well as uh, kind of language politics and um, uh, racial uh, implications as well, where he says that it's no coincidence that Chomsky's popular in general, but there's also no coincidence that he's popular with white guys, like the kind of Bernie bro type people. So his whole kind of critique of Chomsky is in, is in some ways, um, uh, it kind of echoes or mirrors, and he never takes them up at this in this book, but uh, Deleuze and Guattari or he doesn't take it up, them up in this capacity, um, who say that Chomsky, in considering, remember this off the top of my head, it's one of the plateaus in A Thousand Plateaus where they take on Chomsky. Um, they say that Chomsky, or they wonder why Chomsky refuses to forget that the only reason kind of majority languages or kind of majoritarian languages, that is, you know, standard English or French or you know, Spanish or Mandarin or whatever, it's only possible that such things are actually considered to be majoritarian or considered to be kind of profound languages is because there are other smaller ones, you know, dialects, uh, other kinds of um, kind of in-between languages that are needed to, as a, as a point of reference. So it seems as though for Deleuze and Guattari that Chomsky just forgets all that right, is just not interested. Because if you consider that, then you really trouble what languages mean, because then it enters into this domain of a kind of fluidity, where you don't just have a kind of technical or a kind of rational apparatus that can grasp language and then regurgitate it. So you learn English, and then you're able to regurgitate it. But rather, there's a kind of fluidity to it. There's a kind of hybridity, uh, in fact, that complicates the kind of rationalist uh, you know, proposal that language can be understood by the human brain because the human brain is like a computer, which would be true if, you know, we look at very select kind of examples, but as soon as we consider things like race and class and <laughs> colonialism, especially where languages get all muddled up, um, it's very difficult to, you know, extend these kinds of hypotheses. So there was one experiment that was actually done in a, on a Mohawk language that Columbia um, acknowledges 
that was that was bilingual and linguists laughed at it. They were like, no, that's not a real like language, right? You know, we're just dealing with European languages, which is a whole other set of problems as well. But we're, we're going to get into this a little more after or later. So linguistics wasn't exactly always this way. In fact, there was a kind of quote unquote liberal approach to it where when someone was a linguist, they understood languages, you know, not all to be a kind of the same thing, right? Where language is just, just uh, encompasses all kind of speaking dialects, uh, but rather how each one was its own kind of identity. So Chomsky did away with all that, right? And we might think to um, the debate with Foucault, which I, I, if you haven't watched it, I would recommend it. You know, it's on YouTube, um, where Chomsky is making the case that all humans had the ability to grasp language to some extent via some kind of innate um, deciphering apparatus in the human mind, a kind of rationalist one. And therefore, all languages are, can then be reduced to that very apparatus, to the kind of thing in the brain that understands and grasps the world. So this echoes that same kind of computationalism that Columbia is pointing out. It really communicates to the people that they are mappable kind of cogs that don't have, you know, are not going to be directly influenced by things outside of their body. Rather, they can just rely on the things that go on inside, you know, inside their head, of course. Which is why, as well, there's no real coincidence that Chomsky's work was taken up by the military as a, you know, a linguist. Like, how can we understand humans to control them to some extent? You know, to which he's take, he's been charged with that, and he's often, you know, he just brushes it off, like, oh, I can't do anything about that. Uh, but then, he, you know, he obviously fails to see how his work um, influences that. And even to digress, you know, I'm very um, cautious about who subscribes or who listens to this, so I get all the notifications as to who subscribes. And if I see anything that looks a little suspicious, like, you know, uh, alt-right type things or anything like that, I'm, I don't like it. So I, I use that as a warning to try and get further and further to the left with my stuff, at least. Um, so I guess it's slightly in defense of Chomsky. It's difficult to know who's going to take up your stuff for what reasons. Um, but where his work gets really troubling, and this comes out in that debate with Foucault, is that Chomsky suggests that because there is a kind of universal human apparatus to grasp language, then therefore there must be a kind of universal human apparatus to understand things like morality, justice, truth, which is where he gets really, you know, problematic. And where he can be in line with thinkers like Steven Pinker and, and um, Sam Harris, a kind of supposed, you know, enlightenment like neo-enlightenment thinkers that are I, so ridiculously out of tune with what's going on around them that it's it's almost haunting um, but yeah so that's where the kind of right aspect of him comes in so to now extend his thought into computers Columbia makes a very interesting case that the computers are part of a kind of language politics game game 
or, or system that privileges some languages over, the, over others. So he says that some languages are more susceptible to a kind of computationalist paradigm than others. So we think of the European languages, for, uh, for example, where it's very easy to binarize these European languages, and therefore it's very easy for them to, be, to belong to computers or to you know, work with computers. So you have things like a kind of brain drain occurring where people are you know, get, for not even using their own language when it comes to computing, when it comes to coding, algorithms, or anything like that, and instead are relying on English mostly to try and, or, or to make their place within the globalized market of computation. So of the more than 6,000 languages on Earth, you know, people flock to European ones, primarily English, when it comes to everything computers, and computers are everything. So if I were to go back to one of my earlier statements that um, the kind of logic of computationalism is, or the history of it, that is tied to the kind of rationalist approach, rationalist, sorry, I say that funny, um, that is very in tune with a kind of empirical type thing, thing then it would follow that people today wanting to exercise that same kind of rationalist authority take the world as being somewhat material, see the computer as being the zone of computation, you know, dig under the hood a little bit, and what do they find? English. So then there is the extension or the idea that, you know, English is, or it could follow that English is a kind of superior language, that English is, you know, the language of the globalized world to some extent, and that is certainly what's going on here, and it is a form of kind of neo-colonialism, and it it extends much further than that. I have a friend who um, is in the military, and I was asking him, he's a pilot, what language you know do you speak when you're going, you know, to all these different countries? You know, how do you communicate with the you know the air traffic control or or whatever? And he says it's you know it's all English. Right, it's just that that's how it goes. Which is messed up, right? Like this is how English is taking over the world. Six thousand languages, it has you know it's it's yeah. Anyways. Or the the U the UN recognizes like six languages, six six or eight, like English, French, Spanish, you know, look it up. Yeah, Russian, Arabic, Chinese. Uh, English, French, and Spanish are the languages recognized by the UN. Of 6,000 languages on Earth, six are the ones recognized by the United Nations, uh, which is, like, mind-boggling when they don't even speak the majority of the languages. Like, it's... Anyways, uh, moving on. Uh, this is a, a, a neocolonial tool that is the English language being implemented into almost every domain of life, but not on the surface, right? So this is one of the kind of surreptitious modes of control that we are seeing being conducted. So on the surface, it might appear as though the computer is a zone of kind of democratic possibility. You know, it allowed for things like the Arab Spring to occur with a, with people getting together and all that, um, which is which are all good things. And 
Columbia makes makes it clear that he's not denouncing, you know, the possibilities of computers or other technology. But he says that we have to be very careful because what is going on underneath is not so promising. So the kind of um, generalization or the naturalization of English as a language, of the logic of computation as being reducing people to numbers, codes, algorithms, uh, isn't a good thing. And again, it's a change in degree, not in kind. So this is a process that's been going on for a while now. So then Columbia gets into kind of a, uh, he takes a little bit of a turn, and he considers video games as being one of those uh, media uh, on computers that reduces the world to very understandable, grasp, graspable c- components. So he thinks about video games like Age of Empires, Civilization, um, you know, name your kind of real-time strategy game that reduces the world to kind of colonial expeditions in search of, you know, X, Y, and Z um, commodities or X, Y, and Z uh, goods and, you know, moves history in a very linear fashion. Where in the case of, like, civilization, you start in, you know, discovering agriculture. Then you go on through the same tech tree, you know, all the way to the information age. Every time. That's how it goes. So this reinforces, and this is Columbia's argument, this reinforces the idea that history is a kind of linear sequence of colonial expeditions, of conflict, of war, that have just propelled us to this point. So we, we every time we go from point A to point Z. Now he says that you know, obviously it's much more complicated than that, and that just communicates one kind of understanding of history, you know, the one governed by colonial conflict, that is the ones perpetuated by Europe, (laughs) the colonial European nations, I should specify, that see the world as being a hurdle to jump over, to circumvent. So every other culture is one that is in our fucking way, and we have to take them over, either culturally, uh, militarily, you know, you name it, diplomatically, then he makes he makes an interesting point that these video games com- communicate to us the extent to which there is no room for hybridity. So I did you know some videos that I don't think were very good on uh, Homie Baba. So he uh, Columbia takes Baba to task here, saying that hybridity is not possible in these video games because it's just destruction, right? You don't have a kind of fluidity occurring where the, the distinction between colonized and colonizer kind of gets blurred in this middle ground, in this kind of borderland between the two, where there can be a kind of giving and taking. Whereas with these video games, and very much the state of the world leading up to and including this point, it's really about destruction, just eradication. And that comes out of, or is th- that is also part of this kind of neo-colonial English paradigm that sees the world as being something that can be, you know, essentially transformed into English-speaking or at least European language-speaking um, and computational. Because how many people are afraid, especially in the quote-unquote West, to learn a new language? It's it's a and it's not easy, of course, but people are just generally afraid of it 
and they're afraid of people who don't speak their language. That is, I think, a, an extension kind of consequence of this cultural logic of computation that only wants to see things in terms of there's us and then there is them, quite simply. So through this process, which is kind of a process of galvanization, that galvanizes people into binary codes, that galvanizes people into a specific kind of language paradigm. Columbia says that we are seeing a kind of territorialization. So this is in opposition to the idea put forth by Deleuze and Guattari that you know we're seeing with these networks, uh, kind of development of these lines of flight and flows and a kind of possibility of deterritorialization, kind of perpetual deterritorialization. Uh, which is go going on to some extent, right? Capital doesn't see a, a limit. Capital doesn't see borders or barriers or anything like that. Colombia is making the case that at the same time, we are seeing a territorialization because we are seeing the galvanization of language, galvanization of identity, galvanization of computationalism that are all going on underneath the, underneath the hood. So on the surface, on the level of the computer, we could say there is a relative degree of deterritorialization occurring. So there is a kind of liberatory possibility where people from all different kinds of cultures, all different kinds of backgrounds can meet, discuss, because you have you know translating tools or anything like that, um, can, can resist, can mount political change, all these types of things, which once again are all good. But they fail to see the extent to which they are predicated or the their, the condition for their possibility is predicated on this cultural logic of computation that has implications itself. That in the process of turning people into active political agents is doing so by uh, rendering them all computational, rendering them, you know, numbers in a code or algorithms or something like that. So if we think of the history of, uh, in the case of a kind of gendered analysis of this, men perceived as being, you know, the outgoing, in-your-face um, characters in the world and women being the ones that are supposed to be submissive, uh, kind of held back. What we are also seeing with this computationalism is what he says, and this is around page 200, I think it's on page 200, 201. Uh, what we are seeing is a development of a kind of maleness, of technology or male or tech becoming male uh, in technology or let me rephrase that computers are are a reflection of the maleness of society so society governed by the typical attributes associated with men that is supposedly they're rational supposedly they're you know able to speak the truth supposedly they're very you know they're um valid or any other kind of term adjective in fact this is just you know one cultural possibility that happens to have an affinity with computationalism right the kind of empirical rational uh, side whereas women are hysterical unpredictable um, and ultimately you know not not wanted so computationalism is then has a or then has a strong affinity with what is classically understood to be male attributes or male qualities. So then we get, you know, into the very end, and he does what some other thinkers do, and it, and it bothers me. I feel like he, he felt pressured, you know, because he was laying out all these criticisms, 
to which someone could say, so what? What, you know, what are you giving us instead? And then he goes on to say that what we need is communication with real humans, right? So he does, in a sense, undermine his project at the very end because he suggests that humans somehow stand outside of this cultural logic of computation, whereas up to this point, you know, he was saying that this is a logic that has been going on for a long time. It doesn't have to do with computers per se, uh, and humans are just as susceptible to it. So at the very end, he makes two different uh, kind of claims saying the same thing, that humans should use language that is verbal, I would assume, so a kind of metaphysics of presence here, uh, kind of verbal language with other humans, because that's somehow better. But he also uses another illusion, where the computer represents for him what he calls uh, an authoritarian master, whereas other humans, or, sorry, uh, the human with themselves, they're dealing, when they're just, you know, thinking or dealing with other other humans, they're dealing with what he calls a reasonable governor. So as though the, uh, he kind of romanticizes the human experience in the form of, you know, what is really human, which I would problematize till the end of time, uh, because just taking him at his word, it would seem as though that's not possible. It would seem as though that would simply be another uh, component of the same cultural logic of computation that had you know, has been going on for a long time, and that and that precedes computers. So it just seemed odd to me, kind of out of place. Uh, but he probably just felt, you know, compelled to, I guess, give us something. You know, it's hard to say. But I, you know, I was pretty deliberately quick through this this book. Um, there are obviously other characters, so, and he gets into all the kind of nitty gritty of. Um, linguistic theory that isn't for me all that important like there are a lot of little details and kind of historical um, things that are cool and important that you'd get more of just by reading it not having someone just regurgitate facts because my job is to you know try to make sense of the thing as a, as a whole so I guess that's that's that that was, was quick good uh, for those that tuned in for this I hope you enjoyed it, and definitely go read it. And Columbia has a he has a Twitter account. He's pretty he's pretty vocal. Um, let me see what it is. Uh, yeah, just D Columbia um, on Twitter, and you know he's a pretty vocal uh, character. You know, taking on you know present contemporary social issues. Get into all of them, but you know, for the sake of time. But anyways, for those that made it this far, cool. I hope to see you soon. If not, whatever.